You are listening to Shining Star Community Church, English Ministries Sunday Message. Please visit us at www.shiningstar.life. Conspiracies within the South Korean government. Who really is president? If you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry about it. You can, you can Google it. Uh, hurricanes, uh, what, was the, what was the most recent hurricane? Hurricane Matthew, right? Hurricane Matthew uh, still left its mark in Haiti with food shortage, food, uh, water shortage, homes in ruins. There are constant uh, gang violence around the world in our nation, rioting, there's police brutality, school shootings, corruption in the U.S. government, embezzlement, national security threats, scandals among high government officials, scandals in the Catholic Church, scandals in the Protestant Church. Uh, there's, there's, I could go on endlessly with such news, and, but you guys all have access to the internet, and you have seen it on papers. You, have already, you already all know that the world is broken. The world's broken. Okay, turn to your neighbor and say the world's broken. Yeah, I remember talking to a youth youth uh, parent long ago, and um, <clears throat> by the way, if, if any of you guys have youth um, children or you have anyone in children, you have children who are in children's ministry, you know, and you are able to speak English and you can communicate well. Well, this was in my situation. Um, I, I got really close to those who could speak English, the parents who could speak English, and and uh, Korean being. Not even in my, anyways, I don't know. <laughs> so, so I, got, I would get invited by this one particular, particular family, and uh, we had a lovely time. They'd invite me over for dinner, and they'd, we'd talk very candidly about uh, their two children and, and just them, and they were just lovely people. Uh, one day they invited me over for dinner, and we were talking, and I wanted to know a little bit more about them. So I asked them how they came to faith, how they met each other. And, um, and just really asking for their life story, and it was just wonderful. And they told me that over dinner and over some tea and, and uh, how they got married, how they, how they met, and all, that, all those wonderful things. But then they, they also revealed to me a, a big dilemma that they encountered in the midst of their marriage, and that was whether to have kids or not. They're saying, we, kids are difficult, kids are hard, um, it's, they're exhausting. I mean, and, uh, we, and here's the thing. They said, we don't know... <coughs> If you want to bring kids into this evil world, and they're, they're saying this as our two kids sat inches away from us, right? <laughs> um, but the mom said this, with such brokenness and devastation and, and just wanton, blatant evil and wickedness in this world, we did not want to bring innocent children into this mess. Therefore, we did not want to bring children. We didn't want to have kids. Now, as a parent, I get that. I've experienced my fair share of hardships. I've ex- witnessed my fair share of atrocities around the world, too. Yeah, the idea of raising children is scary, right? Having children, it's, it's scary. You know, it's interesting. I, I grew up in Foster City practically my whole life, nearly 30 years. Uh, and uh, there was a time when even when I was eight years old, I could, I could bike, literally cross from one, er- one end of the city to the other at the age of eight. Um, and I would not worry at all. My parents would not worry. Maybe they didn't even know. I don't know. But I would not worry. 
No problems. If, if, if I ever got hurt, I knew where my friends' families were. I just knock on the door and I'm like, hey, can I have dinner? And they're like, sure. You know? You, you can't do that now. You just can't. You can't do that now. It's why? We live in a broken world and it's, and it's getting worse in many ways. Now, I'm assuming that most, if not all of you, already have some idea that something has gone wrong in the world. And as much as you would love to bury maybe your heads in the sand, pretend everything is fine. After all, sometimes it's hard for us to relate with those who are actually struggling, right? Because for some of us, maybe, maybe life is pretty easy. It's not too bad. Maybe it's easier than most. Especially in our Western civilization, especially in the whole DMV area. You know, you know Loudoun County is, it? is like the most, it's the richest county in, uh, in America, you know? And and Fairfax, and if you look at the national family income level, it's high. It's, 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 it's ridiculously high. You know, our schools, Fairfax, Woodson, Oakton, Langley, McLean, all these schools, they're high, they're level. These are great schools. This is a great place to be. And so for us, <coughs> excuse me, maybe it's just hard for us to relate with those who are on the other side of the spectrum. Maybe for us, when prosperity is soaring and when everyone for the most part, has a job when there's always, perhaps, on the weekend, something fun to do. You go to Mosego at Tyson's, you can go hike uh, at the uh, Great Falls, you can go bike at Burke Lake Park area, you can do all these amazing things. And so it's hard for us to relate with those maybe in Flint, Michigan, who can't even drink their own water. It's hard for us to maybe even relate with those who are located in other parts of the world where their towns are in ruins due to constant bombs that have been dropped. You know, I remember seeing uh, this one website, I believe it was on CNN, where they showed the before and after of like wonderful, beautiful little towns and villages all across the world. And this was before war had ravaged its way through there, and the places were beautiful. I mean, if you, if you didn't see what war had done then, uh, before it had, uh, the war had come upon him, you would think it was Georgetown. You would think it would be the suburbs of Virginia, those beautiful, full of life, full of people. There are flowers planted among the sidewalk. People were drinking coffee and, and drinking wine on the side of the cafes. And, and people, kids were playing handball against the wall. And they were just bicycling. And everything just looked so wonderful and so lovely. But then you, you press a little button, and, it's, and it does like a little slide across that picture. And now you, instead of that beautiful picture of the village, you see the remains of a completely ruined city and town. There's no more people there inhabiting it. No more beautiful art on the wall. No more parks, no more flowers, no more smiles, just brokenness, apartments and buildings, completely decimated streets filled with bombshells and massive craters, just dirt, debris, chaos, paradise lost. And that's the account of this passage this afternoon. From the beautiful and just completely harmonious paradise that God lovingly, wonderfully created to the now fearful and fallen place which we see on the evening news day after day. So what happened? Turn to your neighbor and say, what happened? This is the main theme of our sermon. Sin has broken the world. You can, <laughs> I heard someone want to say, let's go ahead, say sin has broken the world. So here we have the election coming up. Woots, woots, right? And we all have an opinion. And for some reason, like I said last week, people think that the world will end if you vote for Hillary. The world will end if you vote for Trump. 
And the people who think that are the same people who think then that there is such a thing as a right candidate, as a right person to elect. And that right person will be the solver of our world's problems economically, socially, with tax policies, foreign relations, healthcare, education, environment, blah, 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 and all that stuff. But what these people aren't getting is that those problems that we face right now here in our society, in our culture, and in this world, they're not the real problems. They're just a glossy surface to the real root issue. Turn to your neighbor and say, there's something deeper. So two weeks ago, last week was Love Festival. How many of you guys enjoyed that? It was wonderful. Great food. Uh, it was, uh, the KM during our staff meeting was saying that it was probably decorated so, so wonderfully. And, um, and they were just really just impressed by it. And, um, and so I'm, I'm just so super proud of all you guys for supporting and, and helping out <coughs> and doing all that. So thank you. But two weeks ago, we saw how, <coughs> excuse me, how sin works. Remember? It all starts. This is how sin works. It all starts by disregarding God's word, and then it somehow seductively appeals to our desires, and then it tries to take over God's place in our lives. That's what sin does. But here's the thing. The whole process of how temptation and how sin comes to being, that's not what, that's not what destroys the world. It's the effects of sin that wreaks havoc in our lives and in this creation and in our relationship with God. So I want to make a few points here, okay? And my first point is this for today. Sin breaks our relationship with God. That's the first point. Now, where do we see that? In verse 8, <clears throat> here God comes walking the cool of the day. And I don't know why it's during that time. I don't know why it's maybe a little bit before afternoon, before the sun is, is high or anything like that. But maybe that was just his time to hang out with Adam and Eve. Either way, he's coming to hang out with them, to fellowship with them, to mingle with them, to be intimate with them. And where were they? They were hiding. They're hiding in tree in shame. This is what sin does to us towards God because it, it changes everything. Obedience turns to rebellion in that I want it my way. Okay? Vulnerability turns to shame in that I don't want to expose my weakness. Responsibility turns to guilt in that I don't trust God enough to come to him. Freedom turns to bondage in that my sin is stronger. It is greater than his grace. Do you see how sin just totally twists everything? Because of sin, we don't want to, <coughs> to have a relationship with God because sin plays an active role in our lives in that it's about power. That's what sin does. That's how it impacts us. We want the power. We want to be able to say, I am Lord. I am God. I'm the one controlling my life. I'm the one that gives my purpose, my own purpose. I'm the one that dictates the things I want to say and do and believe in my life. It's me. And so we say, God, I'm willing to have a relationship with you as long as it doesn't get in the way of my needs, as long as it doesn't get in the way of the things that I want to experience, my pleasure, as long as it does not get in the way of my ambition, my happiness, and my fulfillment. God, then sure, I'll do it. But it's a power move, you see. I want to make my own moves. And I think in that way, that's why we hate contracts, because they're binding but that's where a relationship with God is. It's a contract. It's a covenant. But we don't like that because, really, of our sin. Our hearts are always about, well, what's in it for me? How will my life get better from knowing you, God? You see, God never is the ultimate end. He is the means to the end, right? That's why the whole prosperity gospel is so diabolical. It's all about, God, I will worship you if I can get this. I will worship you if you 
rain money into my bank account. I will worship. I will really trust and believe in you if you make my life easier. If you bring, uh, if you bring greater love and unity into my marriage. If you, if you raise my, if you allow my kids to get into Harvard. If you <clears throat> do all this X, Y, and Z, then I will worship you. Happier marriage, better life, more luxuries, you name it. So that's what sin does. It wedges between us and God, but also surpasses God in that we want more than God. Let me say this. There's nothing more than God. There's nothing more than God. Secondly, sin breaks our relationship with each other. Verse 12, the man said, the woman, you guys love, you've heard this before, right? Some of you guys memorized this line. Some of you men have memorized this line. The woman whom you gave to be with me she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. So not only does this affect our vertical, not only does sin affect our vertical relationship with God, but also our horizontal relationship with one another. Now, talk about a total reversal in commitment and love from the last chapter. Remember, remember when, when, uh, when Adam was asleep and God made Eve with his rib? And so God like wakes Adam up, right? And he brings Eve to Adam. And what does Adam say? Remember? He says, this is it. Right? Remember how he said that? This is it. This is what I've been looking for. Man, if, if Adam had a bunch of bros next to him, he'd be giving high fives and saying, this is what I was looking for. Yes, yes, and yes. I love it, God. You did an amazing job. And so he was exclaiming his complete delight in the woman God had made. Yes, she's it. This is it. I am happy. I am contempt. She is the bone of my bones and the flesh of my flesh. How many of your husbands have reacted that way when you first met your wives? Whatever. So, okay, so get this. That was when God, that was when Adam first met Eve. But now Adam says, look, she made me do it. Send her to hell. Uh, Give me another wife. Give me another wife. Adam is talking to the holy God of the universe, and then they get caught. But what does this man say? He says, her fault. Take her. Leave me. I knew she was up to no good the moment I first saw her. She had those crazy eyes, right? (laughs) Take her. It's her fault. God, I promise you. Come on, we're bros here. Take her. Now, before you start bashing all the men you've ever known to be Adam-esque, irresponsible and cold-hearted jerks. Remember, God, he also questions Eve. What did Eve say? My liege, I humbly accept full responsibility. I am at fault completely. God said this, so what do you have to say to yourself? And she says, yeah, the serpent made me do it. The serpent made me do it. He tricked me. I was just the innocent bystander. And then the serpent all of a sudden comes along, and he totally tricks me, and I ate it, but I wouldn't have, okay, if it, if it weren't for the serpent. So I'm not fully responsible for my actions. You see, God, it's really the serpent's fault. Send it to hell. I love what Tim Keller says. <coughs> he says, sin is a willingness to throw anybody else under the bus to justify yourself. Sin is justifying yourself at the expense of other people to feel superior <coughs> to other people in order to have your self-image, 
to feel superior to other people. I have to expose other people. I have to exploit other people. Sin is saying your life to enhance mine, not my life to enhance yours. Sin breaks up our relationship with one another. Husbands and wives, friends, life group members, church members. Ask yourself the question that Keller poses here. Be honest with yourself. Is your life enhancing others? Are you enhancing others? Do you know what that means? That means, and if you do that, that means that you understand, truly understand the heart of servanthood. Are you trying to make the lives of your life group members, your your spouse, your family members, your friends, your church body better when you get to serve more, give more, do more, to try to enhance their lives, to build them up for success? Or is it about using people or (coughs) not acknowledging people, self-promotion, throwing people under the bus to put yourself back in front or to save face? These are things you have to think about. If you're not enhancing Here's the thing. Some of you guys might be like, okay, this is too much pressure. I'm going to run away from this responsibility. Let me say this. If you feel like you're not enhancing people's lives, if you're not making it better, now's the time to change by the grace of God. Now's the time to change your attitude, change your heart's attitude, change it. Change from instead of just saying, give me, give me, that you would now turn to love them and serve them instead of getting what you think you're owed. Amen? Thirdly, sin breaks our relationship between us and creation. Remember the time when I spoke about the perfect, utopic world that once was? Well, truly, the world was once perfect as God created it. He gave the responsibility for dominion and rule into the hands of man, and man was able to receive and enjoy the benefits of the garden. And so our relationship with nature has now changed. In verse 17, we're told that we can go out there until the soil worked the ground, and yet nothing will come out. You know, before, maybe it was always food, it was always flowers, wonderful, beautiful things, but now it's just thorns and thistles. The ground, the dirt, the dust is no longer our friend. It's not. There will be a clashing of us and the, with the physical environment. The weather is no longer our friend. Nature is no longer our friend. Now we age. We get older quite quickly. We get sick. Quite quickly. Now there are natural disasters. Now we die. A woman once wrote this. It was supposed to be uh, humorous, but she said, you know, my life is dominated by dirt. At this end of the house, there's dirt. There's dirt in the bathroom, dirt on the plates in the kitchen, dirt in the rug. So I work to get rid of the dirt, and by the time I get to the other end of the house, the first end of the house is dirty again. It never ends. And in the end, after all these years of struggling against dirt, what do I get? Six feet of dirt. You see, in the end, dirt wins. Do you see what sin does to us? Brothers and sisters, friends, sin isn't a joke. It's not just some simple little white lie or issue or circumstance or situation that you're dealing with. Sin is not a joke. The very sin you're dealing with, no matter how small you think it is or how insignificant you believe it to be, it's no joke. Because what sin does is that it alienates us from the Creator who is the only source of good. It separates us from the only source of any good thing. He is the only one who knows what's best for us. He is the only one who, <clears throat> whom we owe allegiance and love, and yet 
sin does this. God, it's my way, not your way. God, I know better than you. Talk about the pride. Sin also destroys the most precious family relationships. It turns homes into war zones. Constant arguing, constant belittling turns love into hatred. It turns affection into abuse. It turns selflessness into bitter vindictiveness. Sin also destroys the beauty of creation. The world responds to our sins violently. There is constant turmoil and struggle to raise up anything good in this world now. But brothers and sisters, there's a powerful truth here today. Despite the relationship earth-shattering effects of sin, despite the fact that there's a curse upon the land and we are stricken with disease and suffering and death, despite all that, God has shown us mercy. He has shown us mercy. Turn to your neighbor and say, he's given us mercy. Can you say hallelujah? Despite all that, he has given us mercy. You know what mercy is, really? Mercy is this, as bad as your life is, it could be worse. As bad and horrific and difficult and dire and painful and and bleak as your life currently is, by the grace of God, he's still holding you up. Think about that. The previous verses I just read, it didn't sound too good, right? It was all the issues that were happening. And you're probably hard-pressed to find any ray of hope, but here, get this, in the midst of all this judgment, God's saying, I've got mercy for you. So let's think about it for a second. When God comes looking for them, he says, where are you, right? What have you done? Think about if you were really angry. If you're really angry with someone or something or whatever, what would we do? Just impulsively, emotionally, we just yell, scream, hit, or whatever, so here we have this righteous God, perfect and holy in every way, right? And he made the perfect home for his creation and Adam and Eve and his creation. They royally screw up. They literally mess up everything for everyone. You know how sometimes when we mess up, it affects the person next to us? Adam and Eve, they messed up so bad that it affects the rest of humanity. Okay, so they, yeah, they messed up pretty big. And yet, get this, God doesn't come in and kill them. Adam and Eve weren't immediately killed. Now, don't, don't cross that off as like, of course. No, it's not an of course. God didn't immediately kill them. God didn't immediately smite them. They did not immediately die. Why? Why does God come in instead of, instead of brandishing a sword to say, you're done. One strike and you're done. I'm a holy, perfect God, and now you brought sin to the world. I cannot have you near me, and you were near me in my perfect presence. Instead of killing them, why does he instead approach them with a series of questions? Where are you? What have you done? Have you done what I asked you not to do? Why is God asking questions when he should be destroying them? You know what's amazing about our Heavenly Father? Let me tell you. Do you, not, do you know that from the ups and downs of your life, and no matter how difficult your life is or the circumstances that you are dealing with right now, that God, okay, the wonderful, loving, gracious Father of ours, He is constantly, patiently, always trying to teach us. Always trying to teach us something. Did you know that? God was at this time with Adam and Eve questioning them, 
to teach and to illuminate a truth to them. God at this moment wasn't coming here knuckling and saying, that's it, you screwed, over. You screwed up now. Time's li- time is up. Life is over. No, he was coming to intervene, not to chastise them for, as being some ignorant child or anything like that or to throw them away, discard them like some obscure object. God was coming to them, questioning them to teach them about what they've done wrong and for them to take ownership of their responsibility, to take responsibility for their actions. In other words, we have here our very first divine counseling session. Mercifully. Then God's mercy, despite the horror of what they've done, God, he sought after them in love to teach them the errors of their ways. That's shocking. Let me tell you, that's a good teacher. That's mercy. So God, he didn't immediately kill them, but God, guess what? He never actually cursed man either. Either. God, he cursed a serpent. God cursed the ground, but never upon man. If God cursed man, it would be over. It would be done. No one left standing. There will always be consequences of our actions. <coughs> but in God's mercy, he does not directly curse man. God in his mercy also covered man's woman, uh, covered man and woman's shame. You know what's interesting? <clears throat> when they hid from God, they had already sowed fig leaves and covered themselves. But from whom? Remember, God didn't approach them yet. It wasn't, they didn't sow it after the fact. You see, sin had opened their eyes to shame that they have with each other and exposed the shame. But either way, this was a sad sight, naked and ashamed, trying to hide behind fig leaves. So what did God do when he saw them? What happens? Have you guys ever, um, if someone in your life was having a hard time, did you ever make it worse? Have you ever rubbed salt into their wounds? Have you ever kicked, what's the saying, beat a dead horse or kick someone while they're on the ground? You know what I'm talking about? Did God, <clears throat> what did God say? Did God say, you know what? While these guys were just trembling, he said, you know what, sirs, you're right. Sirs, you're right. May you always shake and may you always shudder. May you always feel the pangs of your disobedience and past guilt. May you always tremble before me. No, God didn't say that. He said, what did God do? I just imagine it. Silently, gently, quietly, he went and he killed an animal. He took its skin and made clothing for Adam and Eve. By the way, to anyone who may have had one, at one point asked, how were people saved before Christ came 2,000 years ago? It's the same way that we're saved now, by God's grace and his mercy. This was God demonstrating the first act of how we do it. He's saying this, Adam and Eve, you disobeyed, you, you sinned, and your sin leads to death, the death of this animal. But by trusting God's forgiveness, he's saying, if you trust me and know that I'm a good God, that I'm a loving God, that I'm a gracious God, that I'm a merciful God, I will forgive you. So with this, it's not difficult to see the coming requirement for the death of the innocent lamb to make atonement to cover man's sin. And of course, who is it? Who is the perfect lamb of God? It's Jesus. Jesus who atones for all our sins and covers us with his own righteousness. Hallelujah. You see, even from chapter 3 of Genesis, way back before even the name of Jesus is named or proclaimed, we have Jesus. So how did Adam, and, how did Adam understand all this? <clears throat> was he like, ah, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm done. Life is hopeless. 
No, he responded with joyful faith. Look at verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Eve means life or life giver. Some of us would say that Eve simply means mom or mother, but that's not entirely accurate because Eve was never pregnant at that time. So what was Adam doing calling his wife mother or life giver? Adam named her according to the promises of God because he was delighting in the promise of God's mercy. Remember, God just said that the seed of the woman would crush Satan's head. This means <coughs> that Adam and Eve would have children. This means that though there is impending death upon us all, there is still God's grace and mercy to lead us all to that one day when the Savior comes and makes all that was wrong right and destroys Satan forever. You see, even though judgment was put upon Adam and Eve, there was also great delight because Adam and Eve recognized the grace of God. So did Adam mess up? Yes. Did Eve mess up? Yes. Well, let me ask you something here. Have you messed up too? answer is yes, we all have. Have you allowed your eyes to be deceived by the lure of sin? Yes, we all have. We've always been giving Adam and Eve a bad rap and everything, but let me ask you this this day. Despite Adam and Eve's failure, they now possess a faith like none other. They, just, they now possess a faith like none other. They trust and believe in God's salvation. And so let me ask you today, this afternoon, do you share Adam's faith? Do you share in Adam's faith? Maybe today you're going through a lot. Life seems bleak, almost hopeless. You're working hard, but it's tiring. You're exhausted. You just want to give up. Maybe past sins keep rearing its ugly head into your life. Maybe you're still dealing with the consequences of <coughs> sin decisions that you've made. I want to ask you today to share in Adam's great faith. That Christ our Savior died to pay for your sins and that his sacrifice upon that cross is big enough, is great enough, powerful enough for us to walk away from our sins and follow Christ. Will you trust in God's promise enough that despite the hardships of this life, that despite your many failings, you can still rejoice, as Adam did, in the hope of his glory? And that to be a Christian, brothers and sisters, it does not mean to live perfectly but that we rest upon Christ's perfect record. Do you rest in Christ? Rest in his presence. I am not good enough, but you are, Lord. To be a Christian doesn't mean that we're free from temptations or sins, but in spite of it, we can trust in God's mercy to deliver us. To be a Christian means that we no longer pay allegiance to sins or even to ourselves to be our own master, but from now on we belong to the one Adam was promised, the one who would crush the head of the serpent. He is Christ, the Son of God. Today, and I end with this, Adam had one thing going for him despite all this. Just think how life was perfect and one day completely flipped upside down and God comes up to him and says, you're, you're out, you're out. This is what's going to happen. This is what's going to happen. You're not going to live forever with me anymore. You're out, you're out, you're out. And yet, Adam, at the end, was able to say in joy and say, yes, God, I delight in you, and call his wife Eve. How was he able to do that? Because despite the hardships that he faced right now and at that moment, he was holding on to the wonderful promise of God's mercy. You know, for, for us right now, maybe we can't see the end of 
the tunnel, the light at the end of the tunnel. Maybe we can't see the silver lining from the clouds. It's just difficult. But God is asking you today, he's saying, even if you don't get what you, what you feel like you could get or should get or maybe would ever get in the future, even though you're constantly in this financial bind, maybe even for the rest of your life, maybe you have this health issue and it's going to plague you for the rest of your life, maybe, maybe, there will, maybe your marriage will not be the ideal marriage that you've always wanted, that you always you know, dreamt about when you were a little girl or a little boy when growing up. Maybe all this stuff will continue on. Maybe the curses of the land will constantly be upon you. He's, well, God will say this. He says, can you still have hope and cling on to my mercy? You know what I love about this one verse when it says the Holy Spirit, when he groans for you? A lot of people have this idea that the Holy Spirit will just deliver us from evil and, and to save us from all tragedies. No, the Holy Spirit is going to make sure that you endure through your tragedies. And so that's what God's promise is. That's what God's mercy and grace is. He's saying, I'm not going to deliver you and, and, and completely remove you from, from life and circumstances. I'm not going to change that. But he says, I'm going to be with you through that. And my grace and my mercy is good enough for you. And it will allow you to persevere as my saints, to persevere as my children, and to endure and persevere even to your death. And one day, you, just like as Adam and Eve are with the Lord right now, you will be in the presence of the glory of God. But until that day comes, God says, rely on my mercy and my promises of grace. And that's in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. Amen? Let's pray. So, Father, we thank you for this uh, afternoon and bring our friends here and this church here. God, truly, we are indebted to you in so many ways, and um, yet not once do you ever say, you know, pay me back this way or give me back this, uh, this way. No, Lord, it's, it's simply what you crave, what you crave from us, Lord, is for us to just be with you. It's that relationship and that intimacy that has been shattered and broken because of sin. It's that idea, that mindset and heart set <clears throat> of us thinking that, that we don't need you, God, and that we can do life on our own, that we can somehow create our own purpose and plan, and how foolish of us to think that. There is no shame and knowing, Lord, that you who are the source of all that is good, that we fully and completely rely on you. There is no shame in that. Maybe right now in our culture, we've just grown so independent. But right now, Lord, um, you're calling us to, to, to depend on you, simply. To surrender and submit ourselves to you. And maybe that's a hard pill to swallow, but... If we ever want victory over the sins in our lives, if we ever want to live victoriously in this life in whatever, however way that would ever look, ever look, the only way for that to happen, Lord, is when we day by day say, God, 
Take me as I am. I surrender myself to you. I give my heart to you. I give my mind to you. Transform me, conform me. Lord, every aspect of who I am, Lord, I want to be a Christian, a little Christ. You've heard this many times before, and I'll say it again. We can't do this thing called life on our own. How many times have you tried, and how many times have you crashed and burned? You cannot, because you were never created and you were never meant to do it all alone. On, all alone. The promise of God is that when you first recognize that and surrender yourself to Him and give your life over to Him, it's the day that you will experience the truest freedom and joy. Despite your hardships and circumstances, you will finally know what it means to be carried. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. That even a wretch like Adam and Eve were saved. That even a wretch like me. Brothers and sisters, I want to give you guys just a moment, okay, to pray. <clears throat> you know how the Lord is talking to you right now, the Holy Spirit. He's probably trying to chip away something at you. Maybe there's a callousness. Maybe there's a lot of skepticism. Maybe there's doubt, unbelief, whatever it might be. God, he's trying to get your attention. You are here for a reason. And he's opened your eyes and he's opened your ears to this truth for a reason. Do not, let, do not let it fall to the wayside. Instead, say, God, if you're truly there, if you're really there, open my eyes, open my heart. And Holy Spirit, you work in me. Let's pray. <clears throat>